You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 24th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. A smattering of Ukrainian officials are abruptly informed that they have served their country long enough. Why can't the UK get its trains to work when it's right next to a continent which, by and large, can? And why are people rediscovering the delights of the paper map? And will it last beyond their first attempt to fold the bloody thing? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Aliona Livko and Enrico Franceschini, will discuss all the day's big stories. And Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco will be here to pick some winners from this year's Oscar nominees. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Enrico Franceschini, London correspondent for La Repubblica, and by Aliona Hlivko, senior consultant at Atticus Partners and a former regional MP in Ukraine. Hello to you both. Hello. Good evening. Um, Enrico, first of all, we haven't seen you for a while, or maybe I missed you when I was in Australia. D- did you go to Italy for Christmas? Not for Christmas, right before Christmas. So I spent the holidays in London. Okay, and what did you do in London at Christmas? Do you attempt to do any? Th- I, I don't know what a traditional Italian Christmas involves. I've never well, been. I, in Italy I, at I did. A, I did a traditional Italian food, but a traditional uh, English Christmas, which is, uh, I'm told, taking a long walk at some point <laughs> after you eat too much. Uh, I, I did. I did the more traditional Australian Christmas of just whimpering from jet lag uh, all, all of Christmas Day. Um, Aliona, I think we have discussed before about how you spent both Christmases. Indeed, um, I did the traditional English Christmas with my English friends, with uh, lots of meat and walks on Boxing Day, and then even got to making some homemade Ukrainian dumplings on the Orthodox Christmas, which was great. Okay, and now you've just made everybody hungry. Um, but we are going to start with Ukraine. And a recurrent motif of President Volodymyr Zelensky's pre-politics satirical sitcom, Servant of the People, and indeed of his campaign when he ran for the presidency for real, was a determination to confront his country's corruption. On the face of it, that resolve is being maintained even in the present difficult circumstances. Several senior Ukrainian officials have resigned, apparently having been rumbled with their fingers in the till. Among them, four deputy ministers, five regional governors and President Zelensky's own deputy head of office. Um, Aliona, this this would be an extraordinary story in peacetime. In wartime, it seems, well, verging on inexplicable. What is going on here? I think in the wartimes, it indicates towards the fact that the country is definitely keeping track of all the developments internally. And because its effective functioning of all the state bodies and and government bodies really decides the future of the country and and the lives of millions of people. It's reassuring to see that they're not closing their eyes on anything that's going on behind the scenes. Uh, The reports, in fact, about um, some misuse of budget money or perhaps even the airtime or authorities that have been quite wide um, Mm. in Ukraine under the martial law. It's been discussed in Ukrainian media since the beginning of summer, actually, and we have some investigative reports coming from various 
outlets. Um, many of them have been mentioned in London over the last two days, like Zarkolotyzhnya, Ukrainska Pravda, Biusinfo. All of those investigative journalists were there since the revolution of dignity. Many of them date back to 20, 30 years of, of Ukraine's independence, but they've been doing their investigations into corrupt practices of Ukrainian elites for a while. Um, and they've definitely been keeping everyone in check, which is really reassuring to hear. And you brought up the Servant of the People mm. series that Zelensky kind of um, created and that led him to his presidency now. Um, he won, as we can remember, 75% of his vote because he ran on that anti-corruption message that he will come in and he will deal with the bureaucrats as harshly as he needs. And if anyone watched the series, you saw that he just pulls out a, a gun at some point and just shoots <laughs> all of them because he's so frustrated with them. Hopefully it will not come to that, even though we're at the time of war. But he's definitely targeting all of them. Well, just to follow that up, Aliona, it's not that he is here targeting the, the rotten previous regime. These are his own people. Absolutely. And by his own people, we need to understand that those are the cadres that Ukrainian authority, that our civil service system had in place, the one that he could choose from. Many of them, um, he's changed even before the war started. If you look back to uh, President Zelensky presidency, in fact, one year into the office, he's reshuffled basically all of his government mm. completely. And they've lasted quite long enough. And they, they were quite effective, might I say, especially at the time of war. And the fact that now several officials, albeit there is a very high risk involved um, with this going very publicly and very loudly, um, the fact that they are not being reluctant and they are letting go of them, they are uh, charging them with criminal uh, charges, there are investigations being held, that's very reassuring. That only should indicate uh, that Ukraine is keeping track of everything that's happening, that there will be no misuse of foreign aid money or weapons or any donations that are going into the country. Uh, that can be made sure of. And there is another element, Ukrainian integral, uh, Ukrainian uh, unity has been integral to, to mm. the effective leading of this war and, and say, um, not losing this war up until this point. And it's important to, to also maintain that. And the risk uh, with making all of these scandals so public lies exactly in the area where Russian propagandists might pick up, I'm sure they will, and twist it in a way that's most useful for them. Um, indicating again towards, you know, the, the usual narrative of Ukraine being a failed state, not being able to run the country, stealing everything, corrupt governance, etc., and all the rest. But I think it's important to look at it as a positive development, that in fact, we're keeping everyone accountable. And everyone who's corrupt will be replaced. And the effective and honest and transparent people who actually care about the lives of Ukrainians will step in. Is Enrico, there's another audience for this as well, isn't there, which is the rest of Europe. President Zelensky has been fairly clear as to what he sees the end point of this conflict uh, once Ukraine has restored its borders, that Ukraine will be a member of the European Union, it will be a member of NATO, uh, and there are standards that have to be met before the EU or NATO can admit Ukraine. And Ukraine is coming from a long way back. Uh, as recently as 2021, Transparency International had it at 122 out of 180 countries. It ranks by uh, their perception of corruption. 
Well, the big discovery here is that the Ukrainians are not God. You know, they also mm. um, sin. They also have a few corrupt, a few bad apples among them. This is not uh, so surprising. It's a good news, as uh, Aliona was saying, that even at time of war, they can fight this off. And in terms of the perception in the international public opinion uh, and people who are helping Ukrainians right now, like the EU or the US, uh, well, who is without sin throws the first row, the first rock, you know? What, what's happening now in the UK? We have conflict of interest uh, in two in the government, corruption all the time, scandals, uh, BBC uh, seats given. Uh, and and you know, it, ta- it, takes, a fair, it takes a fair bit to impress an Italian on this score. Yeah, and no, I don't mention <laughs> I don't mention Italy because you know we have a long history of corruption and and corruption. If you go back to all wars, the history of the wars happened a time of force specifically because there are more money special uh, special things going on and it's more opportunities for corrupt people to, you know, cut hands. Uh, and that arguably makes this announcement, uh, if it is what it appears to be, even more impressive. You are quite right. There is nothing on earth that promotes corruption like war. Um, before we move off this subject, there is another development relating to Ukraine we should talk about. Um, Aliona, it does seem now confirmed that the tanks that Ukraine has wanted for a long time are on the move. Germany will deliver uh, Leopard 2 main battle tanks. And it does also appear that the United States might be delivering um, Abrams 1 battle tanks. Now, it's it's quite early and it's quite possibly too soon to figure out entirely what has gone on here, but you may recall that Chancellor Olaf Scholz did say a while ago that he would send the Leopards if the United States would send the Abrams. It does rather look as if Scholz might have bounced Biden here. Perhaps Biden has decided to donate one or two tanks, figuratively speaking, mm. just to not leave Germany any other excuses. There is, use. of course, some doubt as to whether the Abrams, which is an extraordinarily complicated bit of kit, will really be much use to Ukraine. Indeed. It's A, very expensive, and B, quite difficult to operate. Um, it's quite difficult to operate in terms of logistics and fueling it and just training to use it. Mm. Uh, leopards are, of course, much easier to use. It's really good news if that does happen, because that will unlock the possibility for Poland and Finland to send their tanks and all the other countries who have them, all the NATO members, basically. So that's extremely reassuring to hear. I would like to hope that Scholz has finally changed his mind on Ukraine and the war and will stop using the the phrases like escalating uh, the war or facing any risks because there's no more escalation from the country that defends itself. The only party to this war that escalates things is Russia and we need to tackle that. Maybe Boris Pistorius, the new defense minister, who was quite outspoken on supporting Ukraine Mm. before he's come into the office, maybe that was him making his argument as well, because as we know, he rivaled Scholz in his leadership for uh, the party uh, when they were running for the elections of, of the party leadership, and they had quite different opinions on the situation. So who knows, that political diversity definitely helps Germany and Ukraine. Well, let's look at something a bit closer to where Enrico hails from. Uh, The repatriation of cultural artefacts expropriated in dubious circumstances, especially by Europe's former imperial powers, has been a recurrent theme of recent times. Italy's museums are among those which have faced such demands, in particular from Ethiopia, which wanted quite a lot of stuff back, including the obelisk of Axum and a big bronze statue of the Lion of Judah. But it turns out that these things go both ways, and Italy is 
is now celebrating the return from the United States of assorted relics pilfered from Italy's plentiful ancient ruins in quite recent decades. Um, Enrico, how big a deal is this? Because it is a, it's a quite bewildering amount of stuff. It's a big deal. It's a lot of stuff that is coming. You know, in Italy we have a profession. They are called tombaroli, which is actually sounds like the tombs people. People <laughs> specialize in stealing in old, you know, the old ancient ruins, uh, and and then they they find uh, a lot of archaeological stuff that they sell on I mean, the international this, market. This, I guess, is the downside of having that extraordinary archaeological oh, heritage. Yes. You can't possibly police all of it. Italy has, has more than everybody else in the world uh, in terms of uh, ancient art. The problem is uh, giving back. When when is right, when mm. is wrong. Uh, I mean, uh, um, Italy has uh, one of most famous paintings, the, the Mona Lisa in the Louvre Museum, uh, stolen <laughs> by Napoleon in, in Paris. Uh, uh, and and it's, in London, there are a lot of Italian masterpieces in the museums. It's good that people all over the world see them. And uh, in uh, in a way, if you start uh, repatriating everything, uh, uh, you, you never stop. But then you have the, the Parthenon marbles that mm. are a big issue between Greece uh, and uh, and the UK, which now looks perhaps a bit more, a bit closer to be solved uh, with some agreement. Uh, I don't have a, a clear opinion on what is right or wrong on this. When do you have to give it back and when it's reasonable to keep it? En- Enrico, this is a current affairs discussion program. You can't have ambiguous and nuanced views. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. Have, have, I, have, you, have I, you totally misunderstood I, what we're doing here? I don't know what to think, really. I, I must uh, confess. Um, Aliona, do you have a, a hard and fast thought-out, controversial, hot take on the subject? Should everything be given back to everybody, or should the attitude be if you don't like it, you should have fought harder? You can you can only pick one. I think I'll stick to being nuanced on this topic <laughs> as well, as you know, repatriating everything can be quite a nightmare logistically and mm-hmm. just politically. Who knows when if that process can ever end and what every single country is going to be left with. Um, certainly, it will help. I think eventually, after all the you know reshaping of history and geography in the world, it would be helpful to get all the Italian treasures back to Italy gradually, perhaps, you know, one institution at a time, maybe one collection at a time, something that certainly has been stolen or misappropriated that should definitely go back to to its homeland because it will certainly contribute to tourism. I mean, you rightly say, Enrico, that it's wonderful that people all over the world, London being the tourist capital of the world, can come and Mm -hmm. see all the beauty, but why not go to Italy and promote their tourism? So I think it's only uh, fair to to just give whoever it belongs to. I'm definitely in favor of giving back to Ukraine Ukraine, all the stuff that uh, the Russians are stealing right now oh, in the absolutely. territory they conquer. Well, I was just going to say, Leona, this this is going to be, out the other side of this conflict, an issue, isn't it? Because do we have a sense yet? Where, I mean, it, it's clear that it is happening and it is clear that it is deliberate. But do you have a sense of the scale of what Russia has looted or attempted to loot in terms of Ukrainian culture from the places it has taken? See, on, on this matter, I'm totally convinced and <laughs> not as on um, Italian treasures because centuries have gone past and it's a bit difficult now to ascertain where everything belongs but in this case we are seeing in front of our eyes Russian soldiers going in with so-called experts or someone from that 
community in Russia and ascertaining what is valuable, what should be taken from every single museum, from every single town and city that they occupy. Um, to this day, I think 250 museums have been either destroyed fully or looted in Ukraine. Only in uh, Kherson, I think the number varies between 10,000 to 15,000 artifacts that have been stolen from all the museums in Kherson, extremely valuable collections. We've seen stuff from the Scythian gold collections that is detrimental to Ukraine's history and our Slavic um, tribes going back to before the Kievan Rus, the people who were indigenous um, population to Ukraine, to that land for centuries. Um, it's all, for some reason, Putin is very um, sensitive about that. And obviously, as he tries to make Kievan Rus his own legacy and not leave it to Ukraine as it is, he tries to go after the Scythian artifacts. Um, all of the poets, painters, writers. I mean, we constantly have these discussions in Ukrainian um, society from the very beginning. We go through school with them. Who was born where? Who wrote in which language? Who belongs to who? And very often we can see that even some of the poets and, and writers who say were born in Ukraine, then went to Russia to St. Petersburg, which was fairly enough a cultural capital at mm. the time. Um, and then, but they would write in Ukrainian, in ancient Ukrainian language, or they would paint something about Ukraine, their time. Even Taras Shevchenko, a legend of Ukrainian poetry, who was also a painter and, and sometimes a writer, he would always do something about Ukraine and, and write poems about how he misses it. Most of them were banned or destroyed at the time. And um, that goes to so many artists of, of the days. And it's just extremely terrifying to see how not just they're destroying people's lives, they're trying to wipe out the history, the memory of us being a nation. They tried in every single way, um, but there's no way they will succeed. Uh, Enrico, I think I can see a way to close this item on a controversial note. You got you got halfway to saying something outrageous, and I'm, I'm, I'm going <laughs> I'm going to tip you over it. You you did say that you believe that the Parthenon marble should be returned to Greece, and fine. Uh, you did, however, mention the issue of the Mona Lisa. Should France be compelled to return <laughs> that stolen property back to Italy? Well, no. Oh. I go for no because I love Paris so much that it is an excuse to go visit. You won't be led back home, in, I'm afraid. Uh, I, I have to say, it, I, I have seen the Mona Lisa uh, at the Louvre, but I don't find the painting itself nearly as compelling as the absolutely bizarre spectacle of the people gathered in front of it taking pictures of it. Absolutely. That just always, what are they going to do with those pictures? Are they going to go home and show them to their friends and go, that's the Mona Lisa? And their friends are going to go, wow, is that what it looks like? <laughs> Anyway, uh, it is statistically extremely possible that someone somewhere in the UK is listening to this while waiting angrily for a train that is running late or sitting furiously on a train which isn't running anywhere. The UK has somehow contrived a situation whereby its trains are among Europe's worst and most expensive. And at this point, our guests are both permitted a serene gloat as Italy prepares to add a new high-speed link between Milan and Rome to its already marvellous and reasonably priced network. And Ukraine manages to keep up a standard of service commendable by any standards while a literal war is occurring. Last August, Monocle's Carlotta Rebello spoke to Alexander Pertsiovsky, uh, head of passenger rail services at Ukraine's National Railway. Carlotta asked him how his role had changed since Russia attacked. Of course, number one change was dealing and coping with this huge increase. 
and spike in volume. Uh, number two, we significantly increased our international travels and set up immediately a lot of links with our neighboring countries because aviation was cut even before the war started a few hours before that and uh, we had a call also in the very early hours with the Minister of Transport of Poland who kindly offered like that they were able to do whatever it takes and we agreed that uh, you know something that normally takes months negotiating different slots for trains we just did it on a daily basis and uh, put as many trains as possible to Poland to Hungary there were special trains to Czech Republic and, and the rest uh, number three uh, we did a few special projects for the medical cars for the food distribution and uh, now like also in the record time we uh, transform some of our normal rail cars into uh, the special purpose vehicles. Alexander Pertsovsky uh, explaining how Ukraine's railways have adapted to the present predicament. Um, first of all, I did want to ask you both very quickly in turn, as you come at this from different perspectives as an Italian and a Ukrainian, how bewildered are you, Enrico, first of all, by the UK's railways? I am, very much so. <laughs> I mean, uh, the trains are not comfortable, they are often late, and they are much too expensive uh, to travel to. I mean, it's, it's crazy. The prices do not justify the, the, the way you travel. Uh, and Aliona? Now, going back to the war reality, I was thinking to myself that actually this year I was late to work more because of the UK trains than some very difficult mornings when I had to cry everything out, get ready, pull myself together and get to work. So shame on you, trains. <laughs> um, which does prompt the question, uh, Enrico, how has Italy done it? Well, I, uh, I wonder myself. <laughs> because, because uh, I, I mean, again, I, sorry, this is the, the, the second invocation of national stereotype I'm about to make at the expense of your people uh, this evening. But Italy is not famous uh, as a model of efficiency. That's not what people think of when they think of Italy. But the railways are amazing. Yes, we, we used to say in Italy that uh, the trains ran on time when Mussolini was in power. Mm. Of course, there were other disadvantages. One or two, uh, yes. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, for many years, when I was young, the trains were not were not good. But they were the infrastructure was very old. Uh, there was a lot of privatization, and mm -hmm. it did work well. We have uh, very comfortable trains. They are fast. They are reasonably not too not too expensive. It's almost the opposite of what happened in this country, in a way, <laughs> because because the privatization does not seem to have worked well in the UK. I mean, everybody's saying uh, things were better when when they, they were the way they belong to the state. So it, it's not necessarily privatization which is the problem. No, I don't think so. It's is the way it has been run. Maybe maybe there is. Uh, too much competition in this country mm. between the companies. We have one or two uh, private companies in Italy that run uh, the, the railroads, and in here we have many, and maybe there is a war of prices. Uh, I don't know. The, the thing is that uh, um, the state has, has had some control in, in, in regulation of the system. In Italy, it, it, it worked well. Uh, for a country that uh, for a long time did not help uh, the trains because our main aim was to help cars to develop. Mm. Fiat was our <laughs> big company and people thought, well, you know, we have to grow the auto industry. It's weird. Very good uh, um, uh, freeways, but not very good train. Now, the freeways are still good, but we have good trains as well. Um, uh, you know, the Ukraine's trains have been 
in the news quite a lot as that has been the means by which assorted foreign dignitaries have travelled in and out of Kiev to meet mm. uh, President Zelensky and other Ukrainian ministers. But leaving that aside, how important to Ukraine has been the fact that nearly a year into this, the railways are still running? I think it's essential as it is indeed a, a crucial means of, of communication and connection in the country. Um, before, Ukrainians would definitely prefer traveling on road, um, even though we don't have highways and sometimes they can be in quite dire uh, situation. But mostly the highways that were connecting regional capitals were quite good. Um, nowadays, you have um, blog posts almost every 50 kilometers or so. So you have to be stopped, checked by mm. the Ukrainian territorial defense units. That takes a lot of time. You need a special passcode. You know, you need to know the word of the day to get through to make sure that you're not an agent of any sort and don't, don't pose any threat. So that has become extremely difficult to move across the country, which is obvious we're under the martial law. Uh, the trains have been clearer with that because you you basically board the train at one point, you get off at another one. There is a, a different security protocol. So that was much easier for people. And it definitely helped in evacuating all the civilians from the war zone. If, you, if we remember those photos from people getting separated, especially at the first few waves of immigration with children leaving their m women and children leaving their men behind. Um, so that has been quite effective. We've seen that trains have brought every single Western official, official mm -hmm. into the country, even the recent visit of Boris Johnson. I don't know if I'm allowed to bring up his name or that has been <laughs> blasphemous at this point. He did also thank Ukr Zaliznitsa in his... I mean, uh, he, he almost is he almost is St. Boris of Johnson in Ukraine at this point. He is indeed. I'm afraid he might even go for some sort of position in Ukraine. Who knows? <laughs> we might take him off of your hands. Let, let me add, I remember from 30 years ago, a wonderful trip by train across mm. Ukraine where everybody was sharing food, singing, and it was, you know, one of those trains where you sleep, sleeping mm -hmm. uh, cars. And so it's a memorable memory. I mean, I, we did want to broaden this out into a chat about the joys of train travel more broadly. Are, are you both fans of the idea that within Europe, especially more and more, I'll ask you first, Aliona, more and more air travel will be replaced by either high-speed rail or by more sleeper services as more... European or more European networks are putting on sleeper trains. Enrico, I have done the weird one from Milan to Palermo where they do that nonsense at the end of Italy of taking the train apart, loading it all on a boat and then, I mean, just build a damn bridge is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> Aliona, are you excited for this? I think it is exciting. We're kind of revisiting our past, right? We thought the trains went, in, went back into history since the planes were introduced but going back to trains is not such a bad idea I think it's a bit more sustainable uh, for the environment it could be very effective if it runs well of course look, coming back to the UK trains again and it's certainly a convenient travel and maybe it will give us a little bit of that respite and kind of pause to our extremely hectic lives where we need to get on the train be in a different country in one hour maybe we could just you know as Enrico said uh, sit back relax have a sleep on the train wake up in the new country and get some more time to ourselves but that's exactly it train travel is just nicer it's less stressful mm. and Enrico just as a final thought on this do you, do you have 
And because the thing is, going back to the thing about it being quicker, it is sometimes quicker to actually go by train than yes. once you factored in Quite. getting to and from airports and all the other faffing yep. around. But how much extra time, Enrico, would you be willing to lose? Like if, if you're going from London to somewhere in Europe and you could maybe get there hour and a half, two hours on a well, plane, I think, I think, how long by train? I think if you, if you lose, uh, you, you need a few more hours is not... Uh, Definitely a big deal. And as you pointed out, uh, on short distances like Paris, Brussels, Amsterdam, in the end, it's more even more convenient to go by train. But even in Italy, if you have to fly from Rome to Milan or from Rome to Naples, by the, t- the time you need to be at the airport, the time from airport to the city center, when you can board the train in the center of a city and, and get off in the center of another city... It's a big advantage. Well, let's stick with the subject of travel, and one must necessarily be somewhat suspicious of an announcement by UK mapping agency The Ordnance Survey that old-school printed paper maps are enjoying a resurgence of popularity, on the grounds that they would say that, wouldn't they? Nevertheless, they claim to have the numbers to prove it, as do a good few other retailers involved in the cartography racket. It seems it says here that young folk are learning to appreciate the beauty of maps the wider context they provide and the fact that they don't run out of battery life when you're lost on an unlit country road at night and you're not entirely certain where the Russian border is. And yes, this is an example from real life. That was a sketchy few hours. Um, Leona, first of all, uh, where are you on maps? Are you a fan? First of all, I am a great fan. I like to know, maybe being a slightly control freak I am, I like to know where I am, where I'm going and how to calculate those distances in exact time. Um, as per the paper maps, I'm not sure because I think I was quite stressed out growing up when we only had paper maps. <laughs> and I remember we would... D- did you have in your family an impatient map person? Uh, a father, as it's always. Usually the, it's I, usually the father. I would say that it's usually the father, yes, who gets stressed, <laughs> who gets lost, would not ask for help whatsoever. And then you just end up doing detours for six hours when you're trying to get from the west of the country, the beautiful city culture you see in the mountains, to Crimea, in fact, for a holiday, or Kherson, where we had Dacia growing watermelons, which was a beautiful holiday. But getting there was a pain and sometimes would vary from... 12 hours to 24 hours journey. So I'm a bit, um, I have a bit of an anxiety from paper maps, um, but I'm very willing to to revisit it. I hear, I think I read uh, a research somewhere several years ago that it actually develops uh, the brain function of -hmm. of being a bit more adjustable and just seeing where you are and approaching these things smarter way, not waiting for the technology to serve, um, resolve all the issues for you and tell you where to go and what to do. So generally, I think it's a positive trend. I personally, when I first arrived in London, not being from here, I only used my Google Maps to get around to know all the trains, so I'll stick to that. Um, Enrico, are you able to recall the last time you looked at a map for actual direction-finding reasons? I was trying to figure this out. I mean, there was there was a thing when, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was in an unfamiliar neighbourhood of Melbourne, which did mercifully have up like a placard saying, you are here, but that's not really a map. Well, I, when my my son was when my son was little, I used to travel by car from London 
to the Adriatic coast of Italy with our car, all the family mm-hmm. together, and and I took a map. I had maps to look uh, uh, which route to take through France or through Germany, through Austria. So I, I do remember that, as I remember uh, 20 years ago when I arrived in London, uh, the AZ uh, map to get around in London. You know, uh, after a while you lose pages uh, mm-hmm. and you scribble something here, scribble something there. And uh, so uh, the... Uh, Google Maps has a lot of advantages, I think. On the other hand, when I have to go somewhere uh, across uh, the UK, for example, I like at least maybe digitally to take a look at the region, at a map, maybe a digital map to have an idea of where I'm going, not to put myself completely in the hands of a navigator. And of course, uh, it depends where you go. I have a friend who just took a long trip from Brazil to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And he, before the trip, he went to a wonderful little store near Covent Garden here in London, spe- the one. specialized in maps because, you know, if you find yourself in the Amazon and the, the <laughs> Wi-Fi doesn't work, you do need a map. Um, do either of you have any particularly spectacular direction-finding mishaps engendered either by old school maps or the electronic version that you would care to share. I I did once succeed in getting my travelling companion lost in a small American city which literally only has one street and I'm I'm, I'm still kind of impressed with myself to this day, more, more so than she was at the time. I think my stories would be quite banal but maybe many Londoners can relate especially the newly arrived ones where I would get absolutely lost in the underground system somewhere and the map kept just taking me in circles around and I wouldn't get out for 40 minutes not knowing where I'm going. You, d- you didn't ever do the thing of getting the tube from Covent Garden to Leicester Square, did you? Because that, that, that's, that's, I think that's, that's the one. That's the real amateur's error, that, was that the one. one. Yes, people <laughs> say a lot about the bank station too, but that was the real tricky one for me. Uh, and Enrico? Yes, um, a few years ago with my wife we went to Norfolk for a weekend and we wanted to find a space Gastro pub where you know, I mean, but a map, a map food, of a map of Norfolk is just, no, just a blank piece of paper, isn't it? There's, no, there's nothing there. We put ourselves in the hands of the of Google Map of a navigator, and then uh, when we were in the middle of a forest or something like that, uh, the navigator said, uh, "You have reached your destination." Then the Wi-Fi, <laughs> the Wi-Fi was dead. The telephone was dead. We were desperate. We thought now we will see Robin Hood, <laughs> but in the end, we walked. You know, 100 steps and the pub was there. It was very good. Well, I'm sure all our listeners, Enrico, are glad that you both made it out alive. Uh, Enrico (laughs) Franceschini and Aliona Livko, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, nominations for the next Academy Awards have been announced. And earlier, I spoke to someone who cares, specifically Monocle senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Good morning, everyone. And welcome to the Oscars nominations announcement. It is so exciting to be back live once again to kick off the official countdown to the 95th Oscars on March 12th. Well, first of all, Fernando, before we get into the specifics, I will ask you for a general impression. Is is there a a theme, a pattern in these nominations? Yes. uh, This is going to be a very interesting year, um, Andrew. In the last decade or so, or perhaps even more than a decade, the Oscars have been, you know, 
kind of accused of just catering for one type of uh, film goer, you know, the one that likes to watch indie films. Mm -hmm. And let's remember, this is a Hollywood celebration. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's why perhaps the ratings were not doing that well as well. Uh, last year was about 16.5 million. It was not the worst, but it, it was not a good year for the Oscars. But I, Is it also possible that the ratings dwindled a bit because the Oscars is extremely long and boring and full of the Earth's most over-rewarded people already being... That I disagree, because okay. when they decide, say, oh, let's make the Oscars a bit shorter, I think you lose something out of it. I, f I do think the public has the patience to watch the whole thing if the films they've seen the whole year are nominated. And that's what happened this year. Uh, listen, uh, looking at the 10 films at the best picture. Ten First of, films. Ten films. That's it wasn't <laughs> always ten films up for best picture, was it? Are, are they trying to shift some tickets here? Is that what's going on? Figure that the, the more people we nominate, the more people will feel obliged to buy a ticket. You know what? That's what they were trying to do, but even that didn't work because, for example, I remember one year, uh, The Dark Knight wasn't nominated and mm -hmm. they opened up precisely because they wanted to have a more kind of a, a variety list of films. Okay. But this year it kind of worked. There's even a film that, uh, you know, we have here, Top Gun Maverick, which I know you've seen it and I you have, quite enjoyed. I, I Sorry have, if I mentioned this. I, I have seen <laughs> and quite enjoyed. Uh, corollary to that, I did not do anything daft like pay actual money to see it at a cinema full of the general public. It was I was on a long flight and it was there. And if it's and if you're on a long flight and it's there, yeah, it is hugely enjoyable. Outstanding daft fun. But look, it's not only Top Gun. We have Avatar, The Way of Water, who just grossed more than two billion dollars uh, in recent days. So we have very big films here as well. Of course, we have uh, the Indies, we have Tar, the amazing film about a fictitious conductor played by Kate Blanchett, and that's certainly a favorite of mine. We have everything everywhere all at once. Although I'm not the biggest fan of this film, it's, it's kind of a, it's a very complicated story mm. about a multiverse uh, from the... from Mich as, Mich as the title would suggest. I exactly, exactly. But this film did very well, and it's completely original. You know, it's not part of a sequel or, or, or or an IP, as many of the, these films are. So I think it's been a good year for cinema. A lot of films that people enjoyed. I expect the ratings will increase indeed, especially compared to last year. There were so many indie films, even the winner, Coda. It's a sweet film, but I, I don't think many people will remember after one year. So, so they're nominating films that people actually enjoyed. Crazy idea. Yes, let's, let's see how it turns out. Um, do you have a particular favourite? Is there one you would like to see carry off the big prize? Listen, Tar is a personal favourite of mine, but I also love the fact that Triangle of Sadness, which is a satire on the ultra-rich, but it's a very good satire. It's not so easy to do a satire on the ultra-rich because, you know, I mean, you don't need sometimes a satire to, to make fun of them. But Triangle of Sadness is amazing. And, and, and there's incredible scenes. And, and I'm very happy that the director as well, uh, Ruben Oslund, he's being nominated for Best Director. That's a surprise. If you ask me what's the surprise of this year's Oscars, I think this one, and anyone can as well. So the Oscars are becoming more international, I have to say. So it's not a surprise anymore. Look at All Quiet on the Western Front, which has been nominated for nine categories. It's a German film. I've seen that one as well. The new one? Yes. Oh, from, oh, Andrew, come I on. Know, I know, I know. It's been a big year for me. Um, I, I, I did actually think that was quite long and dull. I mean, I'm not particularly a fan of mm. war movies, but, you know, the Oscars love it. But I have to be honest here, it's mainly nominated on the kind of the technical uh, categories as well. There's no acting ones as well, which I think is one of the most uh, important. And, 
you know, there's all the talk of diversity as well. I think it's been an excellent year for Asian actors. Uh, four of them have been nominated. I think this is remarkable, uh, especially for Best Actress with Michelle Yeoh. She, mm-hmm. she was born in Malaysia, big star in Hong Kong. It's funny, her kind of Hollywood career, is, it was more kind of in the last uh, decades that she became like proper famous. So it's she, amazing. She was, she was in Sideways, and I think we have now named all three films I've seen in the 21st century. Andrew, you are surprising me here, you know, and she's great. I think she's one of the favorites for the best actress. It's going to be a tough battle between her and Kate Blanchett for Tar. So in, you may have already answered this question right there. And obviously, as her fellow Australian, I will not be complaining should Kate Blanchett waltz off with the trophy. But in the actual actor categories, are there any in particular where you will be cheering or booing? I think an interesting one is best actor. Uh, before the nominations came out, I said, you know what, they're going, they're, they're going to give this to Brandon Fraser for The Whale, which is you know a very difficult role he played. He has to wear like heavy prosthetics. He plays the role of an obese man that he's kind of locked in his own apartment. It, it's quite harrowing in a way. He did a, an amazing role, but he's been nominated. But the film didn't do that well with the nominations. I think it just has best actor and, and best makeup. So I don't think he's the favorite anymore. We have Colin Farrell for the excellent The Benches of Inish Sharing, which is a dark comedy about mm-hmm. friendship. I think you might like this one, Andrew. I might. I have not seen it as yet, but I, I would not altogether rule out so doing at some point. You know, excellent year for Ireland, I have to say. And of course, they love you know, a young actor doing well, Austin Butler for Elvis. You know, it, 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 it's 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 a great film. It, it, it's an amazing in terms of the technicality, even the way he changed his voice. Some people even make fun of him because he's still giving in interviews pretending he's Elvis. See, uh, I, I, I did also see that on the flight. It was a very, <laughs> very long flight. Um, I, I thought Tom Hanks was amazing in that. Tom Hanks is very good. It, because but, it, it's, it's not often, in fact, I couldn't recall another time in which you get to see Tom Hanks, whose whole thing is being the all-American good guy, playing a total bastard. Not, he's not nominated, but yeah, boo. it's... Boo. And by the way, I, you know, I need to practice my Irish as well, because there's a lot of Irish actors being nominated. And in the supporting role, for, for the actor in a supporting role, I think Barry Keown, I hope mm-hmm. I said this correctly, for The Benches of Insharing, he's my absolute favorite. It's a small role in the film, but I think it's... You know, it's a beautiful, there's a specific emotional scene in that film, so everyone who have seen The Benches of Any Sharing will know what I'm talking about. And I think he, he deserves, actually, for, uh, for the supporting role in there. And just finally, are you sitting there seething, roiling with rage, uh, as you so often do, at any particular omissions from the list? Well, there's been a few omissions here, and I was kind of excited that there was this Indian epic, RRR, which is about the... I mean, it's not really real life of two Indian revolutionaries. I thought it was extremely fun. I, I, I said, I think it is a, a fun film about Indian revolutionaries. Yes, but it is fun, incredible. That's what a, a Hollywood blockbuster should look like, in my opinion. It only got one nomination for Best Original Song, uh, which I hope it gets, but I think it deserved a little bit more. So that was perhaps an omission that I can think of. Fernando Augusto Pacheco speaking to me earlier, and that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Enrico Franceschini and Aliona Hlivko. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamentuan. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.